Hi guys, welcome back to the Mastering Agility podcast, a podcast series that aims to inspire you and others by bringing in the best people in the business. Now, today's episode is the last episode of this year, but for next year, we have a lot of exciting plans coming up. Really cool guests, opportunities for you guys to engage and be part of our episodes. But for today, I'm going to la- ask you guys a last time this year to go to the website of masteringagility.org, subscribe to that newsletter and stay up to date with the latest information when it comes to this podcast, as well as claiming that OptiLearn discount code for all their scrum.org related courses. Now, there are a lot of different formats when it comes to podcasts, agile podcasts, different hosts, different guests, different topics. And for today, I want to cross episode with the agile and action podcast with bill raymond he has a really nice discussion with the Poppendix about lean software development so today's episode is actually their episode i just want to bring to your attention check him out check bill out check their podcast out it's a really cool format i hope you guys enjoy welcome to the cambermas agile and action podcast with me today are mary and tom Poppendick authors of the Lean Software Development Series, and Mary is a speaker in software engineering. Hello, Mary and Tom. Hello. Hi, glad to be here. Yes, I'm excited to have you here. Can you tell me where you're calling from? So we're calling from Eden Prairie, Minnesota, which is a suburb of Minneapolis. Um, We very often aren't here, but we've been sitting here for the last two months uh, being careful because we're sort of over that age where if you get this virus, you're probably not going to be in good shape. Well, I want you to be in good shape. So that's wonderful. So let's go ahead and get started. Um, first of all, you know, I actually found out about uh, both of you by reading one of your books. And I'm really kind of curious if you could, you have a series, it's called the Lean Software Development Series, as I mentioned. Can you just talk a little bit about why you developed that book series and, and the purpose of it? A little bit of background? Sure. Um, So if you go back to 1999, um, when I left 3M and I was looking around for something to do, I did an early retirement. Um, I found a job being a project manager of a very large software project, and they were doing this thing called Waterfall. And I had never actually heard of this thing called Waterfall or never heard of CMM, never heard of any of that stuff i I'd done all of my software work in an engineering department and had actually been working on product development outside of software for the last several years. And um, so I started looking at what this thing was all about. And it turns out that there is this, this process for developing software that you were supposed to be following. And I didn't understand how it could work. And turns out it actually didn't work very well. So I decided once I figured all of that out that I really ought to write a book about how to think differently about developing software because um, the current stuff that was in vogue made no sense to me. So it was easy for me to write the book because it wasn't writing about something that I had been introduced to. I'd been writing about a distant person taking a look at an existing process that looked kind of weird and saying, you know, guys, there are other ways to think about this. Let me try one on you. So um, I had been in, in 3M doing just-in-time stuff in a manufacturing plant. I was the IT manager or systems manager in the plant, and we had introduced just-in-time flow in that plant in the late 80s, and it worked brilliantly. And um, I thought, you know, all the stuff that we learned about flow and that sort of stuff 
if you think about it, because then I moved to product development and you move that into the product development world, then we would have a model for how to think about a different way to do software development. And that's what the first book was all about. And then subsequently, as we got more involved with software people, uh, getting back into that world, giving talks at conferences and stuff like that, um, it turns out there was some stuff missing in the first book. And so we wrote another book with what we learned. And then there was another book. And then there was another book. And four is probably enough. <laughs> but it was it was really about how to think about this concept of what I'm going to call software engineering, because, you know, there was a NATO conference on software engineering in 1968, and that's where it got its name. And somehow it turned into other things besides engineering. But when I did software, I was in an engineering department. My title was engineer. And um, I still think of software as an engineering endeavor. And one of the problems that I see is that um, when people look at developing software, it came to be regarded as, as a somebody tells you what to do endeavor, which is certainly not the way engineers behave. <laughs> and <laughs> so, um, so wrote the book and gave some talks and, but you know, that was quite a while ago and we continue to enjoy traveling or continued up until like the end of last year, enjoy traveling around the world and, um, uh, talking to people in all sorts of different countries and um, just seeing the kinds of things we could learn from other folks and how to move along this whole idea of this, this stuff that we use as our toolkit, which is software, to solve problems. And um, how could we think about it better and differently so that we could do a better job of solving problems with it? And you used a lot of the concepts that you learned in manufacturing to bring them to software development, software engineering. Mm -hmm. Could you talk a little bit about how you draw those comparisons? Um, remember, I not just did manufacturing, I also did product development. Yeah. And um, for a long time, I've, I've had this strategy of the way I learn about new things is try to think about my past and think about what interesting things that I learned in the past could be applied to the future. But you can't ever apply practices, the way you do things, but you can apply why you did things that way and what results they had. So to me, the idea of um, manufacturing was this whole concept of flow, because I came to the plant with a great big software program that at the time was called MRP, Material Requirements Planning, that was used to plan out all of the workstations, because it's a very big, messy, complicated plant with lots of workflows through it. And it turned out that when we threw out all the computer stuff and started using a pull scheduling system and said, everything worked a lot better. And um, I kind of saw an analogy in the um, all of the inventory that used to build up with our, in our plant and all of the inventory that was building up in a software development process, all these books and documents and stuff that I never actually used. So I didn't see why they needed to be there, but they were there and they were taking an enormous amount of time. And yet they were, there was lots of changes. Um, I mean, it became pretty obvious by that time in 1990 that the development cycle was a lot shorter, but longer than the change cycle. Things changed before things changed before you could um, do what you had planned to do earlier. Well, that was exactly the reason why we moved to a flow system in manufacturing, because demand from customers changed faster than your delivery process if you did a push schedule. 
So if you did a full schedule, you could in fact meet, meet demand much more closely with a whole lot more inventory. So of figures. That's the whole problem. Our change cycle in software development has gotten way too fast for our development process. So it needs to change. It needs to change to something that responds to the demand rather than um, pretends that it can predict the demand. And um, so that's kind of how it all evolved. Right, right. So could you give me an example of, of how that would come into play in a, if you will, uh, if you were to take a traditional approach versus uh, a, a new sort of flow-based approach? Well, I think I'm going to give an example from right now, from you know the last two months. So um, we live in a suburb. We have a car. We, can, uh, we don't leave our house to go anywhere except we get in the car and we drive to a store where we've already ordered online and they come up with some bags, put it in the back of the push button, open the side door, and it goes. We don't no contact. We can get groceries that way. We can get garden supplies that way. We can get just if we got Mother's Day dinner takeout from our favorite restaurant that way, all of that stuff. And um, every what every single retail outlet here in my neighborhood has figured out how to do what they call curbside delivery. And it's some method of contactless delivery, so I don't have to get inside a store. And I can get whatever I want. I can generally order it online. Sometimes I actually have to call on the telephone, you know, for the for the for the restaurant. But they have a way to do it. And you drive up, and you have your cell phone, and there's a number on a sign, and you text in your number, and out comes your stuff. And that didn't have that happened basically two months ago. Two grocery stores had that capability, and it was used on an extremely limited basis. Now, everybody has it. Okay, how fast did it take for a, a, all of those different establishments that have curbside pickup? How long did it take for them to get it in place? Not more than two or three weeks, okay? That was really, it was like, we have to do this now. This is the, this everything, drop everything, because right now the world has changed and we have to do curbside pickup because there's a whole lot of people out there that are not going to walk into our store, but still would like to shop here. And by the time that I needed some grass, the good old, our good old landscape place had it in place, for example. And um, I have to think that getting that stuff in place in a week or two involves software changes, involve personnel changes, involve process changes inside of the retail outlet, involved some supply chain changes, although not many. Okay, if you think about it, supply chain changes have been one of the reasons for shortages because mm -hmm. stuff that used to go to business wasn't packaged for. However, if you, if you buy from your local grocery store and they put it in your car, the rest of the supply chain doesn't have to change. But they still have to figure out how to get the people to put the stuff in the bag, how to take your telephone call and get it out to your car right away. Um, what happens if they don't have what you order? How do they store stuff if they pick it early so that it doesn't spoil? Lots of logistics, lots of added people needed, different parking areas. In fact, one of our stores put like two, two um, added like uh, shipping, shipping containers. containers that were cooler so that they, instead of driving up to the front where there was not enough room and where they only had a few slots, they added all buku numbers of slots, very rapid way for their people to respond. And then suddenly, instead of being able to handle like only 10 people a day, which was the first thing, 
the first time I tried it, the slots for delivery were out two weeks. I don't want to wait two weeks. So they got it now so that I can order today for pickup tomorrow, just about everywhere. And the logistics inside of all of those organizations had to be amazing. And part of it, not the whole thing, but part of it had to be various software changes. Some software changes to deal with the different personnel, to deal with the different in-store processes, some software changes to deal with telling me what they have available, or even the sophisticated ones having me engaged while they're doing the picking so I can actually approve substitutes. So those software, some of it was in place, especially at a few of the more sophisticated places. Most of it wasn't. And I can see a team of like eight to 10 people in a little local grocery store or a small chain around here. They get these 10 people together and they say, we need this next week. You got till Monday. Okay, it's Tuesday now. By Monday, you're going to have curbside pickup, figure it out. Mm -hmm. And that's all they had. They didn't have any more time. They had to have it in place. And they had to have all of these different changes. Part of that group of people figuring it out were people who could change the software. Other people were people who could order the shipping containers or, you know, hire some more people. So that team was solving a very specific problem. And when you have those kinds of urgent problems, you almost always need software changes. Today, there's software behind so much of everything that when anything changes, there needs to be software changes. And there needs to be somebody from the, the that has that toolkit, I can change software on that team that's figuring out how to make that whole rapid change. And it's, it's that concept of when you need to make really rapid changes in anything that you do, and right now today, lots of companies have to do that, it's going to involve some software changes, and those software changes have to be part of that, that team of people that figure out how to make the changes. And that there has to be the person that's going to make the changes and capable of understanding the changes, engage in that whole conversation of how are we going to make this happen, and then make it happen. Right. And that's a little bit different than people have been thinking about software development for the last, I don't know, 30 years. <laughs> well, I could imagine that I could imagine, especially a larger chain trying to figure out how they're going to do corporate, uh, how they're going to do uh, curbside pickup and spending a year and hey, a half even, figuring even that Target out. Even Target has been able to figure it out, okay? Yeah. Um, well, what I'm saying is that this is what, <laughs> what we're seeing is that there's now a uh, an improved flow, right? We're we're not we're not waiting until every logistic has been sorted out. We did a little bit of it, and what you're time. saying is, then change they just keep iterating on and development time. So if change, if the change happens faster than the development time, the development time has to get caught up. That's the. There's no question that that has to happen, mm -hmm. um, because the companies that make that happen, that are able to change in in uh, in the same lockstep as the actual change in the business or in the environment or in with customers, those companies that can change that fast are the ones that have the, the advantage, the ones that get my business first. Mm -hmm. um, so. There are a couple of interesting factors driving the quickness of the change. Um, one is that people care. Everybody on that team really cares about making it easy and affordable to deliver goods to people. Um, they probably use it themselves. Or their so, mom does. Yeah. <laughs> um, and the other is that it's a closed loop. Uh, People care because they see and experience the results, either personally or um, very close, and they see it very quickly. 
So if you care about it and you can see the impact of what you're doing quickly, you're going to do a good job and a continually better job, which are both aspects of the um, continuous improvement and not wasting your time and not wasting other people's time. Well, this makes this makes sense. And, and I think in general, everyone would sort of agree to that, right? But there's a lot of change that just happened that really forced people to uh, go in and, and say, we're doing this now. We are, we are just going to figure out how to do this. I mean, the curbside pickup is just one of a many things right. that probably happened, right? <laughs> Definitely. I mean, massive supply chain reconfigurations have happened around the world. Massive. Those didn't happen without change software. They had to have negotiators. They had to have uh, trucks involved. They had to have movement. There's must many, many things involved in the massive supply chain reorganization. But some of it had a lot to do with figuring out what kinds of software changes were needed and how to make them happen. As part of that group of people, it's going to figure out how to reconfigure this supply chain because this little bottleneck here, at the end, it doesn't exist anymore. So we got to do something to get around it. And, um, and it has to be fast. So in that kind of an environment, um, I got to believe the world is going to be like that. I, I think that the this is not the end of real fast the last two months. I think it's going to continue for a really long time. All I've seen for the past, by the way, I've been doing software for over 60 years. And for all of those years, every decade, there's massive change in the way we think about how we configure and do software. And very often it's responding to very rapid technology changes or environmental changes that we have to keep up with. I mean, when the internet came in, in pretty much late 90s, uh, nobody really was expecting it. They were all completely hung up on Y2K. All the big, every company out there was terrified of Y2K, well, these, these new little things called internet companies, nobody thought of them. And that's when Google started, for example. Um, and they weren't worrying about Y2K and they weren't worrying about the old way of doing software. They were worried about how do we get these uh, cool, very smart engineers to put interesting stuff online so people can, you know, find information by, by going on our site or how do we keep our site from crashing or how do we ever have that much stuff distributed over that many computers with an instant response time? That's, those are massive technical challenges. And, um, they attacked the, or take Amazon, how the heck do we have a worldwide um, order processing thing, basically retail store, that, 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 uh, that doesn't go down, that has the right supply in the right spot, that moves really fast. The technical challenges of figuring out how to put that much software together on not big central mainframes, which were the thing up till then, but on, turns out, a massively distributed set of, of, of hardware uh, on the internet, which is basically something built on sand. You know, it's kind of notoriously unreliable and always will be almost by design. How do we do that? And they were figuring out all of those things while everybody else was figuring out about how to make sure that they didn't crash when Y2K came. Mm -hmm. Well, well, um, so as I watch all of this change over the past decades, um, you just can't be living 10 or 20 years ago. You have to be living in what's happening next because um, what's happening next, where things are going is where it's at. 
And in our business, in our world, with the change, that's, the technology change and the, the, the demand change from, from using our technology, constantly changing. We can't be living in uh, the way things were, I don't know, 1990, 2000 even. Uh, 10 years old is out of date. 20 years old is obsolete. <laughs> So we have these situations where a company kind of just embraces this. And I think there's different cultures, right? You know, there's, mm-hmm. there's cultures where, you know, it, there's a sort of, we have to be safe and, and move at, you know, a pace that, you know, kind of represents a, uh, you know, I'm thinking of energy companies and, you know, the companies that have a very strong safety culture, right? And yet there's still and a rightly lot of, so and rightly so, sure, but then you also have this need to stay kind of more advanced in the in the market, and they're starting to see that even these changes during COVID are affecting how their business uh, needs to run, and so they're starting to look at new business opportunities, they're looking to get into new markets. I guess the question, though, is that all this kind of drove it in such a short period of time, including this curbside pickup basic example. How do you institutionalize something like this? What are some of the steps that managers need to think about, uh, leaders need to think about to do that? Okay. Um, Let's go to any good company and let's go to the general manager of a business unit. That's the, let's, let's talk about that. Mm -hmm. So the general manager of a business unit, what they do is what we just talked about. Look at what's going on out in the world, find out where things are moving, rapidly reconfigure with a mind to excellent operations and safety. But they were trying to get ahead. And as the competitive environment changes, they're on it. Okay. Um, I don't find that business managers business leaders in most organizations have any problem with the concept of how do we keep up with change? That's kind of what they're hired for. They kind of like it. Some will be better at it than others. Some will be, you know, a little more intimidated, but in any kind of business that's moving fast, those are the kind of folks that end up, you know, leading the business, especially if it's a business where there's change, like take insurance right now, big changes going on, like take banks, there were big changes going on. So the, the, the line managers get this as it's their job. This is what they're, this is how they spend their time thinking about these things. The problem, if you want to come from an institutional point of view, is that we have put software systems outside of the realm of that business manager. And they have to go through another organization to do it. They don't have to go through another organization to get marketing done. They don't have to go through another organization to get product development done, typically speaking. They have that all under their control, and they can reconfigure as necessary when things happen. Why they would have to go these days to another outside of their organization structure to get software done makes no sense anymore. It used to, because it used to be that in the 80s and 90s, most software was automating business processes. And so, you know, you had this organization that went around to the different businesses in the company and tried to figure out how to automate their processes and make them a little more uniform. But we're not automating processes. We're doing product development, for heaven's sake. 
Product development belongs in the line organization where the business manager has their thumb on the pulse of their business and can make the rapid reconfigurations necessary when their business changes. That's their job. And we need to get way closer to organizationally from a structural point of view to the, the people who are the ones who need to get the change in the marketplace made. We need to be much more tied into the, the, the customers of the business and what it is that they want and they need rather than have these multiple layers. So we need to uninstitutionalize this concept of having a separate IT department. Oh, a separate IT and and engineering. So you're you're basically saying, hey, this is um because that actually I guess that kind of we're you're you almost want to go back to the way some things were actually. I remember back when I was well, no, actually I'm I'm gonna I'm gonna bear with me for a moment. Go ahead. <laughs> <laughs> I remember when I was working in an IT organization and a manufacturing company, and all of the all of the manufacturing plants essentially had their own IT organization. They could set up whatever they needed to there. They had their own infrastructure and they really liked that. We centralized all of that and we decided that it's all going to be under sort of a single IT umbrella. Yes, you might have your infrastructure. Uh, you might have the systems, some of the systems you want, but we might even take some away to, 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 to optimize, if you will. I guess one of the things that's really changed, and, and you already alluded to this, is the fact that there isn't necessarily, or doesn't have to be, this concept of a single infrastructure that an organization owns. And Well, that's pre-cloud area, era. Mm -hmm. How many companies feel like they have to own their infrastructure anymore? Right. I mean, for heaven's sake, that's what the cloud is for. And that's what it does. It makes obsolete this concept that we need to say, yeah, the cloud is a centralized place where we all get our infrastructure from. Fine. Mm -hmm. But that's not inside the company that we go there. It's like plugging into an electrical service. Mm -hmm. And um, yeah, we don't need an organization to help us put the plug in the wall. Maybe a little bit of an organization, but the, the vast majority of using software right now is to get the way that we go to market, the way that we run our supply chains, the way that we do all of these things better and more competitive. And, and software pervades that whole thing. And the people who are responsible for figuring out how to do that need, as one of their tools, software, because they have all their other tools. Why can't they have that one as part of their toolkit? Um, yeah, I have to say, I never actually worked in an IT department. I worked in an engineering department. So... I'm a little biased on this sort of thing. <laughs> it's all driven by a pursuit of optimization. Mm. And um, most of the dysfunctional things that uh, have been done in the last 50 years have been in pursuit of optimization of something. And uh, what has been optimized has shifted through time. Um, at one point when shareholder value became the thing, everything was focused on optimizing the numbers and making your measures of things as optimum as they could be. Um, in the more recent world, it has focused to shift on optimizing customer experience and optimizing um, 
the outcomes, not the silo metrics that had driven so much bad behavior through the decades. The whole thing comes down to principle see the whole, optimize the whole, not a subsystem. Suboptimization is very, very tempting because people are measured and rewarded on local metrics. Are, is your piece of this doing as well as it possibly can rather than is the final outcome that the organization is pursuing as good as it can be, regardless of whether your piece is as cheap or as fast as it can be. Mm. Yeah, if you think about lean, it was a let's rethink this concept of resource optimization and start thinking about flow optimization instead. When that idea first came, it was so counterintuitive. Of course you want to optimize resource utilization because that's what costs you money until you figured out that flow optimization actually gave you better resource utilization and results, but it did not totally optimize resource utilization because complete optimization of resource utilization causes huge amounts of, of inventory buildup and stuff like that. So the lean concept was let's get away from resource optimization and go to flow optimization instead. Let's just try that. And um, taken pretty far, you still can optimize much better the whole thinking about flow optimization than you ever could with resource optimization. So when you look at the stated definition of Scrum when it was invented, it was the scarce resource is development resource. This is meant to optimize development resources so that they spend all of their time just doing development and somebody else figures out all the rest of the details. Interesting, but sort of not the way I learned how to be an engineer. Um, so uh, that's fine, except that it doesn't bring the tech viewpoint to the whole picture. It optimizes just a piece. And instead of that, we need to figure out how to make sure that we're thinking about how do we get curbside pickup working by Monday, not you know, how do we make sure that we have enough software developers to do that piece? Um, so we need to have a sort of unified approach to a short-term, you know, a thing that we're trying to accomplish that crosses different disciplines in a really sophisticated manner these days. Um, and we need to take our software people and start making them part of teams that solve customer problems, that solve logistics problems, that solve supply chain problems, that solve, you know, those kinds of problems and those kinds of teams have lots of different kinds of people on them. And by the way, I bring my technology and I can solve your, you know, anything that needs this tool kit, which happens to be software. But when you have a team, it consists of several different people that are solving a very, you know, targeted problem that the organization knows that it needs to solve and needs to solve quickly. That doesn't mean you don't have overall strategies and stuff like that. But it does mean that you also have to have teams that can respond right now to making stuff, something that you've decided is important happen right now. And um, you need the team to be focusing on making sure that it happens. It happens correctly. It happens safely. It happens with robustness. And, um, and, and it, it uh, does the job that it's supposed to do. It makes the customers happier or gets you the new supply chain that you needed as fast as you possibly can. So... Um, 
this, this, this concept of let's not optimize just one thing is really what we've spent too much time doing. Let's not just optimize software development. Let's optimize the thing we're trying to accomplish. And there happens to be some software, but maybe that's not the thing that needs to be optimized. The thing that needs to be optimized is something else, and we need to bring the proper tools to it so that we can. There are really three factors in today's world that need to be balanced. The first is the flow um, efficiency optimization that we've just been talking about. The second is um, the experience of the people doing the work and the people that it's, the work is done for. That is the human aspect of it. And the third, which has come into very sharp focus in the last month or two, is the resilience and adaptability. If you optimize, you tend to reduce flexibility and resilience and ability to adapt quickly. Um, but you can't, as we've just found out. You have to balance those factors, which all contribute to the success of what any organization is trying to accomplish. Yeah, our really long single point supply chains with great big ships moving great big containers all around the world really fast and stuff like that optimizes for an awful lot of stuff, but doesn't necessarily optimize for the fact that the supply chain could be broken. And when it's broken, all of a sudden we realize that we didn't build in some resilience. I, I like to think of Iceland when I think about that. Iceland sits on top of geothermal stuff. They have volcanoes like all the time. <laughs> and they have, you know, they have this ice cap and the volcano come up under the ice cap, create a great big melting spot. And then the melt from that will come down, crashing down a valley and down a river. And when it comes, nothing's going to survive that gets in its way. And yet Iceland likes to have a road all the way around the country. You know, they like a circle road. And every so often, that circle road, it gets in the way of all of this ice crashing down the valley. And guess which one wins? <laughs> Certainly not the, not the road. And so they used to try to build it bigger and bigger and more robust and, and still got wiped out. And finally, they said, okay, this is kind of dumb. Why don't we just build it good enough and recognize that it's going to get wiped out and have the necessary equipment to put the next bridge up when this happens, all sort of staged so that it gets wiped up, we can have a new bridge in a month. And guess what? They always have their road open now. No problem. And it's way cheaper than trying to build the bridge that isn't going to get wiped out by the water coming crashing down from the uh, volcano under the ice cap. So um, we need to start thinking that way. Let's stop trying to have everything so perfect that nothing's going to go wrong, and let's recognize that it is going to go wrong. And maybe it would be better if we plan for resilience rather than plan for nothing going wrong. This plan for resilience is one of the, 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 the sort of kingpins of everything that goes on in data centers, okay? Everything that goes on in the SRE jobs, this is the, the site reliability engineering job. It's not how do we make our data center 100% reliable. It's how do we recover and how do we contain problems because they're going to happen because at any scale, we're going to have problems. So let's just buy that and let's say, okay, um, how do we make sure that no problem gets too big 
And how do we make sure that when we have a problem, we can rapidly recover? Now, if we did that with our supply chains and with our businesses, we would probably configure things a little bit different than we configure them right now. And um, I think that's something that we can learn in all of our processes is how do we put together ways of doing things that are robust and resilient and responsive rather than perfect hmm. and never going to get destroyed and never have any errors because we got to quit kidding ourselves that the world is going to be perfect. It ain't. It's not going to happen that way. So the ones, the people that can respond fastest and are most prepared for the black swan events are the ones that are going to do well. So what are some uh, words of wisdom, some thoughts, some insight into how a company can best plan for resilience? Um, if you, I, I can't tell you from a company point of view, but I can tell you from how um, in the software world, our great big data center companies have done it, okay? Mm. So the plan for resilience of a massive data center is got two basic strategies. One is replication and one is isolation, okay? And what they found when they moved from big company data centers, you know, to something that was 100 or 1,000 times larger. So what Google and Amazon were doing in the, in the mid-2000s was stuff that was, like, massively more complex than any comp individual company. And what they discovered was at that complexity, stuff happened. And at that size and scale, stuff happened. And they, could, they had to quit worrying about five nines and eight nines and nine nines and all that. And they had to start figuring out how to plan for resilience instead. And they found that there were two things that had to be in place. One is isolation, which meant that you had to take a stuff that happened and isolate it from anything else. So when it exploded, there was a box around it. And so isolation, so for example, Amazon has, uh, for AWS, multiple data centers because they're gonna go down, okay? And you have to be able to flip to another region or at least to another part in the data center. So one is isolation and, and, and uh, one is isolation so that if this data center goes down, it can't cascade and take down another data center. So that if this server goes down, it can't cascade and take down another server which is not easy. I mean, networks like to cascade and have cascading failures. So first of all, you have to isolate so that cascading failures are not possible. And secondly, you have to um, have redundancy so that when one area fails, there's another area to pick up the slack right away. And it's those two things that they found in very large scale uh, data centers, the isolation and redundancy, those two things, are what makes those data centers so ultra-reliable. It's not like they never go down. That for sure isn't true. But what they have been able to contain with isolation, any given trigger of a problem, and they have been able to um, very rapidly recover, and that's partly through their triple or more redundancy. So for example, um, I worked on the number two ESS system. That's a switching system. This, the this, the second model that Bell Labs put out for electronic switching. Um, when I got my first job in 67, the very first electronic switching system had just been installed two years earlier. Up until that time, all telephones in, this, in the world, and especially, and most certainly in the U.S., were switched with relays. 
And so I was working on the system that was going to be put into the suburban, smaller suburban exchanges. And we had a design goal of a maximum downtime of uh, two hours in 40 years. And the reason for that is because all of the, all of the um, relay systems were that reliable. Because if a, one relay went down, eh, it's okay. You know, there were lots of other relays, okay? So they, they needed a system that cost the same amount of money and wasn't reliable as these relay systems, which were incredibly reliable. So that was our design goal. And in fact, we met it. Um, with a single computer with like half or more of the software and half or more of the hardware um, doing replication and checking. And I wrote software that once a, one of the computers got tossed out because it didn't match, I could go in and find the bad card and tell the technician so they could hurry up and replace it and get it back online so that they continued to have their duplicate systems. And it was all calculated through mean time between failure. And, you know, in 1990, okay, so this is quite a while later, um, the, the whole country was covered with these little electronic switching systems, and they'd been super reliable. Everybody depended upon them, even in a disaster, okay? So one thing you could count on was your phone system working back when it was these rotary phones. <laughs> and <laughs> then one day, um, a failover in one of these little uh, little switching systems caused some sort of message to go to another switching system nearby and caused it to fail over. And this propagated through the entire network so that in, um, in 1990, half of the telephone system was down for nine hours. That was just like unheard of. People were saying that we were having a, an attack from a foreign country or something to make this, this happen. So they had cascading, they had cascading network failure. Um, even though this thing was designed never to have such a thing. And so they, they did, they made a mistake and they made a mistake in their communications and they were unable to isolate the individual systems. And one network failure took down like the whole one node in a network failed to take down the whole network. That doesn't happen on internet. If, if, if I have a node on the internet and it goes down, there is no way for it to mess up the rest of the internet and cascade. And the internet was specifically designed so that one network failure would not cascade across the network. So we've learned from a very sophisticated and very robust telephone network that failed that we had to be even better at isolation so that we didn't have cascading network failures. So this it's this isolation and redundancy that cause us to be able to have very, very reliable electronic data centers. I don't know how you translate that to the whole overall business. Um, I think there's an analogy, but I haven't thought hard about it. <laughs> but, but you have to think about um, those two principles are, are, are not so intuitive, and they're certainly not necessarily the most cost-effective way to do stuff. I think the way it applies to a larger business is that you have to avoid getting too big. You have to um, divide things up so that there is local control, local decision-making among a group of people who know they can trust each other. It um, was manifest, for example, in 3M where Mary was working. Um, when a division got too large, they split it up into 
two divisions. Same at Gore and Associates. When any one line gets too big, they split it up into separate lines so that all of the people working, the technical people, the manufacturing people, um, are closely related and focused on their particular piece of the market and on understanding their market, being close to it, adapting to it, um, but not being so large that the subsystems end up being big enough to sub-optimize at the expense of the purpose of each division. Um, so you have to be able to make adaptation locally among the diverse group of disciplines that are needed to implement changes that are necessary. And going back to the curbside delivery case, that's a lot of different things, uh, a lot of different disciplines, uh, and it has to be optimized at a local basis in the context of the actual delivery of what value that you are creating. Uh, when Mary um, led the transition to lean at the magnetic tape plant with 3M, the management team figured out the concept, defined the aspiration, but the actual transition from the push environment of an MRP system planning who does what when to the pull system where the orders determined what happened next at each level of the chain, um, that detailed planning was not done by the leadership. It wasn't done by engineering. It was done by the line workers who are actually doing the work. They could negotiate with the next step and the previous step about how to signal what happens then next. They could improve when things didn't work as well as they wanted them to. And it was only possible because the control of the details of what's going on were done locally rather than trying to be imposed by any um, level of expertise yeah, we were management or called uh, external engineering intervention or consultants. <laughs> we were lucky because we kind of predated the consultants in Lean, so we didn't have any of those guys. We had to figure it out for ourselves. And I, to this day, am positive that if somebody had come in and given us a way to do it, we would never have been successful. The only way we figured out how to do this pull system was to have the people on the floor figure out we gave them the concept, and they figured out how to how to make it happen. They figured out how what where the Kanban cards did. They simulated stuff. It took a long time for the plant to physically figure out how to move from a push to pull system, and we couldn't figure out how to do it gradually. So we did a cutover over a weekend, but it was amazingly successful, like amazingly successful because the people who I mean, it didn't work perfectly the first day, but things were a whole lot better than they were the Friday before. And what made it work was that every single workstation was was uh, staffed by people who had designed the new system. 
And if it didn't work, well, that's okay. They, they, they just figured it out because that was their job because they'd figured out this system. Well, that didn't quite work. Let's try this other thing because they'd been doing the figuring out of how it was going to work for a long time. And they knew that they, that was their job to figure out how to deal with any problems. So things didn't come to a screeching halt. Things worked really well and they just kept getting better because it was the people doing the work that figured out how to do the, the design of the, of the common cards and the, all of that stuff that had to be done. And I, I think that when people doing the work are the ones that figure out how to do something new and better, it's way more effective than somebody come in with an answer and say, here, do this and you'll be good. Right. And so there you go. <laughs> well, no, this is, this is really good insight. And honestly, this is why I wanted to talk to you because one of, so I have, I found, I think I already told you this. I, I learned about both of you by way of reading a book that I stumbled across called Lean Software Development, an Agile Toolkit. That's that's part of your series of books. Oh yeah, that was our first one. Yeah, and 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 you know, I I was re- <laughs> I am almost done with it. And one of the things that I think is really important when we're thinking about whatever you want to call it. Do you want to call it? leaning your organization? Do you want to call it improving team flow? Do you want to call it agile? Whatever it is, it's all about how you're organizing so that you're getting work done more efficiently. That will ultimately, hopefully, make you make for happier, more efficient teams. And, and, and I, what I think one of the things that I love about your, your books, and I, and I highly recommend them for it, and this isn't an advertising advertisement, you're not paying me to say this, um, one of the things I really appreciate is the stories, the, the you know, the backgrounds, the, the, you know, I'm not just saying you should do this because this is something that popped out of my head. I'm, I'm suggesting that you should look at the story and look at this experience that I had and, and see if there's an, if, if you see that in your organization and maybe find a way to, to, to do similar improvements, even if they're not the same, you know, right. take, take these ideas. And so and that's, I, have to, I have to say that when I first wrote the book, I got an awful lot of criticism for not coming out with specific instructions on how to do things. <laughs> um, and I said, I'm sorry, I can't. Like, I, I don't consider it possible to come out with specific prescription on how to do things. The idea I have is that people have to think for themselves. They have to figure out for themselves how to solve the problem. Because in my experience, that's what we did. We, we understood the overall goal. And as a leadership team, we transmitted that goal to the people in the plant. We understood the general thing that we were trying to achieve. It was this, this, this just-in-time thing that they were doing in Japan, okay? At least we wanted to try it. We, had, we even created simulations to sort of demonstrate what we had in mind. And then we turned it over to the people and said, figure it out because we need to do this in order to survive. And they did, they figured it out. And you have to, you have to do that. You have to say, you have to, from a leadership position perspective, you have to come out with a vision of where you need to be, the method by which you believe that you can get there in a manner that everybody can understand. But then you have to let the people that are gonna do the work, figure out how to take that vision and in detail, Make it work in their world, in your world, because whatever any other company over there is doing, uh, 
it's not your world, it's their world. So you got to look at the ideas. You got to look at the, 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 the things that work. That's where the stories come in. But you can't do what they did. You have to think about how they figured it out and then figure out how you can figure things out. And, and it should be different. Yeah. And with that, I think that's a great way to end this podcast because I, I just really appreciate the, the thoughtfulness that goes into how you thought about writing the book and, and the stories that, that, that came out of it. And, and just, it, it's so relatable. And I think this was as well. And I really appreciate all of the insights that you provided today. Uh, Mary and Tom, how can people reach you? Of course, I can share your website, but is there any other way you'd like folks to reach out to you? Well, we tend to respond to email. <laughs> okay. So if you send me an email, Mary at Papandick.com, um, with any questions or anything like that. Um, I also have a blog. It's, it's at www.leanessays.com and every several months I put something new on there. Um, and, um, but to, to reach out and make contact, I don't use most other methods. I usually, uh, I usually respond to any email that, that people send. Well, so that's, that's probably that's... the best way. And it's okay. Mary at popandick.com. So if you can spell my last name, you got it. <laughs> well, we'll put it in if the show notes. If you can't spell my last name, it won't reach me. <laughs> <laughs> well, we, we'll put it in the show notes so that people can good. find you no problem at all. And and also, I uh, just will say that I did read a number of your articles on Lean Essays, and I know you just released one recently about training wheels and uh, yes. a very interesting, interesting article. So definitely go there and check that out. Uh, so with that, thank you very much, Mary and Tom, for your time today. I I really Thanks so much, Bill. I hope you guys enjoyed the Agile and Action podcast with Bill Raymond. Find their website, find their episodes in the show, lo- the show notes. Links are included. They have really cool guests too. I hope that's going to inspire you guys too. Now, as a last note for this year, for the 2021 season, it's actually the first year of this podcast and the effect has by far exceeded my expectations it's so much better than i ever ever anticipated before we've been listened to in over 100 countries the episodes and the guests have been amazing the discussions and my own learnings in this this whole journey have been amazing more than i ever anticipated and i would really really want to thank you guys for listening for being my support in this for giving the feedback i thoroughly appreciate it now for the last couple of days remaining in this year i hope you enjoy enjoy the festivities enjoy the drinks the food make sure you you and your family are and remain safe and i hope you guys come back to listen next year the first episode is already going to be a banger marty kagan is going to join us to talk about empowered organizations how to get people empowered and how that relates to product management See you guys back in the new year. Hope you're going to be safe. Enjoy.